Hello, Rebecca. Hi, John. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis based on my newsletter, News Items. It's Thursday, May 13th. John, what are we talking about today? First, we're going to talk about President Biden, who signed an executive order to make U.S. agencies and software contractors boost their cybersecurity defenses. And I also want to talk about Luis Inacio Lula da Silva, who is running strong in a recent poll and appears to be the heavy favorite to be Brazil's next president. The election is not until next year, so we have a ways to go. What are you looking at? All right, well, let's talk about digital ads. The digital ad market is booming, which is good for news and media websites of all kinds. John, I know you're curious to talk about whether it's just a COVID-related spike. And then we will talk about the latest in the saga of Facebook's yet-to-be-launched digital currency, which we have learned as of yesterday will be a stablecoin backed by the U.S. dollar. All right. Well, before we get to those, let's get to the science and tech news. So for the first time, scientists have captured detailed images of key receptors in the hippocampus, that deep part of the brain where memory and learning happen. The researchers at Oregon Health and Science University are hopeful about enabling new medicines for epilepsy and seizures. As the senior author put it to Science Daily, quote, epilepsy or seizure disorders can have many causes. He added that this research opens the door to targeting the molecules responsible for a particular condition. Having suffered seizures in in my life five years ago, Mm -hmm. this story is of particular interest to me. Um, It's yet another example of brain science moving ahead by leaps and bounds. So it's really good news. Absolutely. Next, the Financial Times is out with a story today on how, for a while, mRNA was dismissed as, quote, a sideshow by much of the scientific community. One ongoing pandemic later, mRNA-based vaccines have proven to be a medical marvel. Moderna's market capitalization has exploded by 600% since the pandemic was declared. It's now at $63 billion. As the FT's article points out, implicit in this valuation is the belief that mRNA won't just play a central role in future vaccines, but in treating ailments like heart defects, HIV, and even cancer. Of course, the jury still out on that. John, what do you say? Well, the husband and wife team founders of BioNTech, really all of their research was focused on cancer up until they switched off and tackled a vaccine for the pandemic. It's extraordinarily exciting what the work that they're doing, and they seem to be confident that they will have major breakthroughs in cancer mediation, at least. So it's really an exciting field. Well, it's good news, the mRNA story. It's fabulous. Let's get to the news items. Right. So, John, yesterday we talked about the cyber attack on the Colonial Pipeline. President Biden has signed an executive order to beef up the U.S. government's digital defenses. This order was in the works even before the Colonial Pipeline shut down. This order creates a cybersecurity safety review board charged with investigating cyber attacks and issuing security recommendations. U.S. agencies and software contractors working with the government are also ordered to adopt security protocols like multi-factor authentication, data encryption, and the disclosure of hacks. John, is this the first time that cybersecurity directive has come as a result of an executive order from a U.S. president? As far as I know, I mean, I'm sure that there have been diktats from the White House and the Pentagon and the NSA to say we got to get on top of it. Mm -hmm. But it is astonishing to me that for years now, we have been under attack from 
various actors, sovereign nations, criminal gangs, so on and so forth. And apparently we haven't retaliated, as far as I can tell. We did the hack against the North Koreans in concert with the Israelis, but there's been nothing really done except sanctions against the Russians. Is that a choice or is that a lack of capacity? Do we not have the capacity to effectively counterstrike? I don't know, but I I must say, we talked about this a little bit yesterday, the, you know, we're going to investigate cyber attacks and issue security recommendations. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, if if you're going to sell that to Jacksonian America, right, we're going to have a meeting and we're going to blah, blah. I mean, that's not what people want. Yeah. Vital infrastructure of the United States of America. We're not talking about somebody, you know, robbing an ATM machine, Mm -hmm. right? You're disrupting the flow of half of the oil and gas to the most vital economic region in the world. I mean, it's not, this is not like, let's have a study group, Mm -hmm. let's go. And I think that's the real danger for the Biden administration. It hasn't become a political issue yet, Mm -hmm. but I think it very quickly could be one. Well, in terms of whether it's a a political liability or whose political liability it is, back in January 2019, the director of national intelligence warned explicitly that China had the capability to disrupt U.S. national gas pipeline infrastructure from a cyber warfare position. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what we learned from the colonial pipeline attack was that, you know, the colonial paid off the attackers, uh, yeah. dark side, mm-hmm. $5 million. Yeah. And that unlocked the the attack. Yeah. You know, if it were a sovereign state trying to, you know, disrupt the smooth functioning of the United States economy and bringing it to its knees, they wouldn't have to unlock it. They could leave it locked. I think the takeaway here is that The stakes have been rising rapidly and the attacks have increased in their ambition, their penetration, and their brazenness. Besides colonial, we've had the Microsoft Exchange attacks, which is believed to have originated in China. We had the SolarWinds hack, which was believed to have originated in Russia. There have been attacks on biometric technology. Those have been ongoing and have been attributed to Iran in recent months. I mean, this is transnational issue, and it's time to get the intelligence community on board. I think they are on board. I think the problem is we're not taking action. I think it will convert into a political issue very quickly. Okay, John, so let's move on to a media story. According to tech site The Information, growth in digital advertising has boosted the profits of giants like Facebook and Google, but now it's showing up on the balance sheets of all kinds of media and news sites, too. Vice's digital ad revenue is up 25% year-on-year. The New York Times saw a 16% rise in the first quarter, and even Verizon's soon-to-be-sold Yahoo AOL group benefited. Industry executives think growth will continue later into the year. One of the losers in this story is TV, which saw falling ad revenue in Q1 this year. That's part of where the digital world's dollars are coming from. John, are we looking at a turning point for traditional versus digital media? As somebody who goes through a lot of websites in the morning, I mean, for hours, you know, the digital advertising could not be more annoying. Mm -hmm. There's a great story about that, which is the, I'm not sure if he still is, but he was the chief marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, which I believe after Unilever is the number one advertiser in the world. He said at an ad week conference or something, that the average length of time spent on a digital ad is 1.7 seconds. 
and that from the point of view of Procter & Gamble, the kind of broadcast, if you will, digital ad is, quote, a complete waste of time, end quote. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the targeting has improved since then, but I'm not sold on the idea that advertisers will swap out all their TV dollars and put it into the web. That said, one last caveat, digital ad spending did pass TV ad spending, I think, last year or the year before overall. So, I mean, one of the things about analog TV advertising is that you can be reasonably assured that the people watching television have two eyes and a pulse and that they're actual human beings as opposed to, let's just say, for example, Facebook, something like 16% of Facebook ads are thought to be either fake or fraudulent. You're reaching some accounts that aren't even legit. Right. That's a problem. Right. I think the surge in digital advertising has to do with the fact that a lot of us are working from home. Yeah. And so we're not in our office and we're not going to meetings in our office and this, that, and the other thing. And we're spending a lot more time on the web. Um, and so if that's where the bodies are or that's where the eyeballs are, then that's that's where you're going to advertise. If, if and when we get back to, quote, more normal, end quote, uh, work uh, arrangements. Yeah. I wonder if, if digital ad spending will, will decline. All right, John, let's move on to Brazil. I know you've been uh, champing at the bit to talk about I Lula. love Brazil. Yes. Okay. So as we, as we mentioned in the intro, former Brazilian president Lula da Silva would crush the incumbent Jair Bolsonaro in a matchup. That's according to a poll done over the last couple of days, which showed Lula getting 52% of the vote to Bolsonaro's 32%. And just to remind you, Brazil's Supreme Court annulled Lula's corruption convictions earlier this year, making the leftist candidacy possible in the first place. He's not officially in the race, but has been laying the groundwork. Brazil's election is scheduled for October 2022. So there's time for Bolsonaro to turn it around. But, John, Lula da Silva is insanely popular, right? To a point. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> he's, uh, Obama described him as the most popular politician on earth. So he's back, and uh, and the way it works in Brazil is what you call a jungle primary. Everybody runs, and if no candidate, no one candidate gets 50% plus one votes, then the top two run off, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not what we're paying attention to. What we're paying attention to, is there a third candidate who could surge up and sort of scramble the eggs, if you will? There isn't. There isn't. The closest uh, candidate is at 7%. None of them register really nationally. We don't know, obviously, what the environment will be in October of next year. But right now, Lula looks like a big winner. And so what everybody is speculating about is will Jair try to essentially shut down the 2022 presidential election Mm -hmm. and somehow install himself as not president for life, but president for the time being. How likely is that scenario? I mean, do you think that's... I think it's entirely, I think it's entirely possible, you know? I mean, I I really do. From my point of view, Bolsonaro is capable of anything. Bolsonaro's approval rating is at 24%. It's the lowest of his tenure. So he's not operating from a position of strength by any means. I mean, he is on the ropes. And what does he do when cornered? Yeah, exactly. I mean, 425,000 Brazilians have died. And I think many people agree that's that's really on Bolsonaro. That's really on him. Oh, totally. On his watch. I mean, ab- absolutely on him. 
I mean, he aggressively mm-hmm. mishandled it, right? He said, well, you don't need to do this, and the social distancing stuff is nonsense, and I, I don't think he can win. Okay, so John, Lula is a beloved figure, a very popular politician who had high, very high approval ratings back in his day, but he did go to prison on corruption charges. So what was the story there? The charges revolved around influence peddling, no, no great surprise there. But I don't think corruption is going to be a big issue. I think the pandemic and the economy will be the two big issues. And I think the larger question is whether Bolsonaro, knowing that he's going to lose, will decide to short-circuit the process and essentially execute a coup d'etat. Well, it's going to be interesting to watch. We're going to take a break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back to talk about, as we mentioned earlier, Facebook's ongoing cryptocurrency project. Welcome back to News Items. John, for our long item today, let's talk about Facebook's latest plans for its cryptocurrency. This will be good. Well, for better and for worse, Facebook is scaling down its ambitions a little bit. A couple of years ago, it announced it was launching a digital currency called Libra. This was to be a synthetic stable coin, which is to say that it was a coin backed by a basket of multiple currencies that exist in the real world. Facebook said it wanted to help people around the world, the unbanked or the underbanked, to access financial services. But policymakers, understandably enough, were worried about users' privacy and how the new system might enable money laundering and other financial crimes. So the global project was put on pause. And now Facebook has announced that it's shifting focus just to the U.S. market. It has rebranded Libra as the DM Association which is moving from Switzerland to the U.S. and planning to launch a stablecoin pegged only to the U.S. dollar. This will be called the Diem, set to roll out later this year. John, do you think this pivot solves Diem's problems, which is to say Libra's problems, which is to say Facebook's problems? At the beginning of this, the Libra project was wildly ambitious, right? Essentially a global currency that was viewed by regulators not just as a concern about privacy or money laundering, but as destabilizing to central banks around the world. Yes. So there was a dramatically negative reaction to this, and the U.S. Congress piled on, and so Facebook scaled back. What they're proposing here sounds a little bit to me like Venmo. So I'm not sure, you know, if they're going to scale back. Obviously, they've had 10,000 meetings to discuss, okay, we can't get in at a global level. How do we take the first step? Yeah. And it appears that what they've settled on is kind of Facebook Venmo. Yeah. And that begins their assault on financial services. I have no doubt. <laughs> I have no doubt at all that their goal is to be a major player in financial services. Sure. But, you know, they're going to have to take baby steps before they do Yeah, take on the big guys. Yeah, they're going to have to take baby steps, and they're going to have to take regulated steps. So I read the announcement from DM yesterday, which I thought was very interesting. The coin is going to be administered by Silvergate, which is a California state chartered bank and a member of the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. DM will register as a money services business, which means it will register with the U.S. Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. Right. So this idea that they're just going to fly free and easy as some independent currency that is untethered to any uh, old school bummer you know, financial <laughs> right. services, that ain't happening. That ain't happening. So, I mean, they they did make nice with the corporate announcement yesterday that the objective of the project is financial inclusion and responsible financial services innovation. 
Yes. Play nice in the stand box. <laughs> That's touching. I do think that given the sort of ubiquity of Facebook on your mobile device, that transacting financial trades or whatever, because everybody's fluent in Facebook, doing your, quote, banking, end quote, with a Facebook app makes a lot of sense to me. And, yeah. uh, you know, the whole thing with Facebook is the 1.8 billion or 1.6 mm-hmm. billion daily active users. Yeah. That's what they have that no one else has. That's what they can leverage. And, you know, when they started, they thought they'd do that globally. Now they're doing it essentially locally. The one thing I take away from this is that we might want to invest in Silvergate Bank. Well, if you, you can if you want. Silvergate, since 2019, has traded on the New York Stock Exchange under ticker SI. Not a trade recommendation. Not a solicitation to buy, sell, or trade any stock. Well, <laughs> I'm going to call Jim Kramer and find out if I should yeah. get him on it. So. All right. For your, for your charitable trust. Okay. <laughs> All right. Exactly. <laughs> I know. That's, so what are you? Are you bullish on DM? Yeah. Do you own any cryptocurrencies, by the way? I was going to ask I you. Do not. I you do, do not. You do not. No. All right. But I'm I'm all in on on this Facebook currency. I think that the ease of use will be fantastic, and I think the pickup will be, you know, the the thing about yeah. Facebook is it is the greatest ally of small business, right? Is it? Yeah, oh, no. it's a okay. fantastic. For instance, there was a golf club that was like short, like fifty members to make their numbers work. And they went to Facebook, and Facebook put them, you know, anybody who was interested in golf and lived in that specific area and, you know, was of certain age and so on and so forth. These people were able at very low cost to reach that audience effectively, and they filled up their membership virtually in no time. And that's what Facebook can do for you. You pay $25 per thousand impressions. So for 2,500 bucks, you have a million impressions. And if you combine that with a currency, it makes it easier to sell goods. And I think just because they have such vast reach that they are going to be a major player in financial services and because they have to grow dramatically to maintain their share price and to see their share price go up, they have to go at big things. You know, they have to go at huge categories. The one that, you know, Amazon tried to break into and gave up on was healthcare. But, you know, Facebook going at financial services, if I were looking at it from the point of view of, say, Bank of America or Wells Fargo, I'd be like, yikes, you know, Mm -hmm. these people are coming for me. And when when they come for you, you know, they're ruthless. I mean, they they don't care. It's interesting that the past 24 hours has brought this kind of, not synchronized, but synchronous pairing back of crypto ambitions, not just by Facebook, but by, you know, Elon Musk's move on saying that Tesla was not going to accept Bitcoin payment anymore because of the environmental impacts. Right. Elon's come under fire previously for talking down the share price of his own company. Right. But I'd be curious to know, if you looked at a correlation of the charts of how correlated Tesla and Bitcoin are, I bet it's pretty close. Uh-huh. So one way of sort of jawboning your own stock price without jawboning your own stock price is by talking about Tesla. I like or Dogecoin. That. I mean, <laughs> that's a good subject for uh, Matt Levine's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not making an accusation. I'm just making an observation. It's an innocent observation. That's also true. I mean, <laughs> the environmental impact of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. To keep the blockchain running, 
consumes vast amounts of energy, electricity. Yeah. All right. This topic has taken us far and wide. That's what we like. That's what we like. (laughs) We like to wander about. Yeah. All right. So that's it from us today. Uh, For a deeper dive on all of the topics that we discussed here today, you'll want to subscribe to John's outstanding newsletter, News Items. You can find it at newsitems.substack.com. you got to go for the premium subscription, which is where the good stuff is hidden or not so hidden on a daily basis. Go to News Items and subscribe. And do you have anything on Bitcoin and, uh, and the investableuniverse.com today? I have a blockchain story up today. Yep. You do? Okay. Yep. Well, then yep. listeners should go to investableuniverse.com and read what you have to say. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ellie Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer is Tom Stewart, and we'd like to thank the whole team at Factory Underground. We'll be back on Monday afternoon with more of the news. See you then.